Father God, send us your Holy Spirit. Now as we come to read your word together, would you give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ? Would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we will know the hope to which we have been called? Would you reveal yourself to us, each one here this evening, so that we can know you? We ask these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So if you want to um, grab a hold of the Bible verses, that's on the second sheet. Um, Haggai chapter 1, it's actually the whole of the chapter and I couldn't fit it on one service sheet, so that's why we've got two bits of paper today, um, front and back, it's the whole chapter. Um, if you want to follow along in your books, in, sorry, in your Bibles, you're very welcome to do that as well. It's Haggai chapter 1, Haggai, for those of you who don't know, is, a, is a, it's one of the Old Testament prophets, it's towards the end of the Old Testament in your Bible. Uh, just before Zechariah, which is just before Malachi, which is just before the book of Matthew. So it's right at the end of the Old Testament. But anyway, whichever way you want to follow along, that's fine. Let's read God's word together. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, of, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labours. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. We'll leave the reading of God's word there for a moment. 
Uh, we are starting today a new series through the book of Haggai. And as you can see, if you've got the whole Bible in front of you, there's only two chapters, and we've basically just read half of it there. Uh, the other half will be split into three more talks. But the series is entitled, Now is the Time to Build. And hopefully the, the reason for that will become clear as we go on. Now is the time to build. I wonder if you, like me, have ever started something but never finished the job. You've stalled. A common phenomena is for people to start DIY projects, get going, but then for whatever reason, they end up stalling. And it might be months or even years later before they ever finish, if they ever do. There are TV programs with people who leave DIY projects unfinished for years and years and years. Maybe for you it's not so much DIY, maybe you have experience in, in something like a diet plan or an exercise regime, full of good intentions at the start, but for whatever reason you get sidetracked as, as time goes on. For me, I must admit, my, my weakness is reading books. I think I must have started probably actively at the moment. I've got about 20 books that I've started, read the first few chapters and then moved on, started reading another one. I, I can never uh, finish books very easily. Maybe for you as admin, some people just hate the admin pile, but uh, you know you get these big piles of admin uh, and you just never want to finish it off. As Christians, um, the same kind of phenomena can be noted as well among believers, believers in Jesus. Uh, maybe you started out well as a believer in Christ, you, you got saved, uh, and yet for whatever reason, if you're honest with yourself right now, in some ways you have stalled in your Christian faith. And maybe it was a major sort of uh, issue in your life that, that led to this position, maybe a, a series of decisions or behaviors or whatever it happens to be, but compared to what it was like at the start, if you're honest with yourself, you have stalled. You're just coasting along aimlessly. This can happen to churches as well. We saw this in our last teaching series. Churches can start off well. Churches, even like ours, can start off full of passion and enthusiasm by an excited group of people, but for whatever reason, they never seem to continue to grow. They, they stall at some point in the future. They experience a dip for whatever reason. The tools get put down. That initial spark and enthusiasm just seems to peter out. Projects stop. The fervor that was there at the start just diminishes and for whatever reason, the church starts to coast and just becomes ineffective and, and just fairly pointless. I don't know if you can relate to any of these things here, but the book of Haggai that we have open in front of us addresses this exact problem. And the answer, as we will see in a few moments, is that now is the time to build. We, we've just spent... A few moments there, reading uh, the, the, the intro message from Haggai, who we're told is a prophet of God, he's a messenger of God, and he brings God's word to God's people, Judah. And, and it's important for me just to give you a little bit of historic background to know roughly what's going on. That'll help to make a lot more sense of, of, of the Bible text as we go. The date that all this was happening was 520 B.C., in fact, we can date, apparently, uh, the message here that's just been given to the 29th of August, 520 BC. And at that time, 
Uh, we have a group of people who are living in Jerusalem, uh, but they've only been there for a few years. The, the people of Judah had been in exile in Babylon for many years. Uh, the, the backstory to that is that through their ongoing uh, um, unfaithfulness, their oppression of, of minority groups, their injustices, their, their, their ongoing unfaithfulness to the law of God, God gave them over to a period of discipline and they were taken off into captivity by the Babylonians in 587 BC. And there they were, the majority of them, the leaders particularly, and the, and the people in the sort of higher levels of society were taken off to Babylon in captivity. But as time went on, the Babylonians themselves were overtaken by the next superpower, the Persian Empire. And they sort of reversed a lot of the actions of the Babylonians. In fact, their first uh, Persian king, a man called Cyrus, allowed all the captive groups that had been gathered up by the Babylonians, allowed them all to go back to their own country. There's a thing actually in the British Museum, a big uh, massive chunk of stone is called the Cyrus Cylinder. And it's, uh, it's a big circular thing, uh, cylinder. And uh, the whole thing is inscribed with this beautiful uh, Persian um, treatise. And it's exactly what we see here in the Bible. Cyrus himself on, on that uh, Cyrus Cylinder lays down the decree that all the displaced people groups can now go home. They can go back to their countries. They can worship their own gods. Um, as long as they keep paying taxes. And so that's exactly what happened to this people that we're just about to come to in a minute. They went back to Judah after 50 or so years in captivity. And so back they come, and they're given this mighty calling by God. And he says to this people, this remnant people who come back to Jerusalem, he says to them, I want you to rebuild my house. I want you to go and rebuild the temple so that worship to my name can be reinstituted once again. My renown among the nations can be restored. Go back and rebuild the temple. And so as we read in the book of Ezra, uh, work was started. They got going on the, on the foundations and it was all good at the start. Excitement, they could see the thing taking shape. But as the story goes on, pressure from hostile neighbours, economic downturn, whatever the situation was, they put down their tools. They started off very excited for the rebuilding project that God had them on. But the morale became low. They were threatened and frustrated, and so they put the tools down. And so enter the prophet Haggai, who received, as we've just read, the word from God for God's people. The people had stalled in their initial work. Nothing had been done for 17 or 18 years. And then along comes Haggai. And as you can see in verse 1 of our passage this evening, Haggai addresses the leaders of the people, Zerubbabel, who's the, the governor, he's like the civic leader, if you like, and Jehozadak, who's the high priest, he's the religious leader. Eventually, the, the whole people hear the message as well. But the message is brought to the people by the hand of Haggai, who gets it from God himself. You know, when you go to preacher school, one of the things that they teach you in your message when you're preparing your message is have something called the big idea in 10 words or less give me the 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 theme or the underlying purpose of your sermon and we have Haggai's big idea in verse 2 this is the big idea of everything he's saying thus says the Lord of hosts 
These people, that is Judah, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. There you have it. The attitude of the people is that for whatever reason, now is not the time. We've got other priorities. Their hearts, their minds are saying, now is not the time to rebuild the house of the Lord. Of course, when you read the prophets, they always come up with a solution, with a fix, a response. And we'll see that in a few moments. But before we get there, Haggai gives the people, or rather God through Haggai, gives the people two reasons that they have stalled. Two reasons that they need to sort of search their hearts, they need to join the dots to work out why they have stalled, why the work has not been done on the house of God. We can categorise them as internal reasons and external reasons. First, the external reasons for their stalling. Number one is that they have restricted resources. That's why the work has stalled. They've been looking at what they've got and they've concluded they haven't got much stuff. Look down at verse 6 with me. You have sown much, you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. He who earns wages does not put them, sorry, uh, does so to put them into a bag with holes. Later on in verses 10 and 11, we see that there's a drought that's sweeping the land as well. Life is very tough for this returning group of exiles. It's not the dream response that they had anticipated when they came home. There's been poor harvests. There's been lack of food. Their money is practically worthless. There seems to be a a recession going on. Economy is shrinking. They have restricted resources. Not much money going around, and what they had has largely been spent. And so for many people, the temple project was less important for them. Their enthusiasm wanes. They think it's nice if we can afford that kind of thing. But in reality, there are more important things that we have to spend our money on just now. So the first reason for their stalling is they have restricted resources. But then he turns the screw a little tighter. He looks a bit more deeply into their hearts. There is an internal reason as well for their stalling. Not only have they got restricted resources, but they have personal priorities. And the two are very obviously, hopefully, connected to each other. The people had some form of resources, they had some form of money, but as we'll see, they chose to divert them to other things. Look down at verse 4. God says to the people, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house, that is the temple, this house lies in ruins? The people are living in their panelled housing while God's house is a mess. It is in ruins. Panelled housing suggests completion. They have been working on their own homes. They have completed it maybe even an element of luxuriousness about the panelling. But either way, it's pretty clear where their resources have been spent. They've paid attention to themselves. Look again at verse 9, halfway through verse 9. It says, My house, uh, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Again, that contrast is so clear. 
They have personal priorities. They've been prioritizing themselves, their own comfort, their own property, instead of the job they were called to, which is God's house. And the result is this. Whether it's from restricted resources or personal priorities, the temple lies in ruins. It's in total shambles. And the people are living comfortably in their own houses. See, the point of the temple is not just a symbol of national pride or a nice religious thing to have if you can afford it. Look down at verse 8. The point of the temple, God reminds his people, is that it is a place that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. That's what he wants to achieve from the temple. It is the place of God's special presence among his people. It is the place where his people gather to worship him and to glorify him and to reflect him to the nations. So that God takes pleasure in what they are doing. And while they are living in their panelled houses and the house of God is in ruins, that can't happen. God is not taking pleasure in the situation. He is not getting glorified and worshipped and honoured among the nations. We experience this kind of thing often. Uh, I don't know if you can imagine going into a, a shop one day looking to buy yourself a new top or a new pair of trousers or something like that. And imagine you walk into the store and uh, it is a store that's very badly organized. In fact, there's bits of clothing everywhere. Some of the trousers are not in the trouser section. Some of them are found down in the shoe section. And there's a lot of stuff on the floor as well. Maybe you walk around the shop trying to find a pair of trousers that you like the look of and that, that suit you and, and, you, try and you want to try them on and you, you get there and the, the changing rooms are out of order. The, the light's broken. And you ask the staff and they're, they're just consistently rude. What kind of impression do you get of that shop, of that business? You get the impression, don't you, that these are a group of people, this is a business that just doesn't care about its customers. They don't seem to care about making money. They don't seem to care about their image in the public. In the same way, God's house, when it's lying in ruins and a shambles, reflects badly on God himself. The people, the nations, think, what sort of God is this? Look at his temple. It's in pieces. It's the same with churches. I, I, I always say this. Buildings preach. They preach a message. Facilities matter. More importantly, what's on the inside, the people that make up the church, preach a message, whether they have words or not. Their attitude preaches a message. Their level of commitment preaches a message. Whether they care for one another, whether they can be uh, showing acts of love and service, preaches a message. It says something about their God. You're living in your panelled houses, says God to Judah, and yet my house is in ruins. So we've seen there two reasons why they have stalled, restricted resources. Times are hard, got to make choices, but personal priorities over God. 
Let's look then at the fix for this problem of stalling. The, the, the prophet gives us three fixes, three solutions to a stalled church, to a stalled nation, to a stalled person. Number one, he says, stop and think. Number two, he says, obey and fear. Number three, go and build. Three solutions. Number one, stop and think. See, in verse five and verse seven, this phrase comes up twice. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Stop and think. If you want to get unstuck in your Christian faith, if you feel you're in a church where, you're, where the church is stuck, number one, he says, consider your ways. That means read the situation. You're not connecting the dots, says the prophets. You need a revelation from God. That's what I'm here to bring you, says the prophet. You've been making the wrong conclusions about the situation. You need insight into your lives from the Holy Spirit. Stop and think. See, it's more than just economic hardship. It's more than just fruitless labor. Can't you see? He says in verse 9, you looked for much. Behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Because the house of the Lord is in ruins while you've been working on your own houses. I called the drought, says God in verse 11. See, this is not unfortunate for you. It is not your bad luck. It is not just the prevailing uh, society and, and all that stuff. Stop and think. Consider your ways. God says, I've allowed this. God, you see, was using their hardships and their trials and their suffering to bring them back to him. God was very specifically allowing his people to go through these hard times so that they will see where they are going wrong. That's his way of calling his people back to himself, of alerting them of the situation that they found themselves in. Sometimes he does that to us too. He allows hardships and suffering into our lives as a way of calling us back to himself. As a way of saying to us, stop and think. Consider your situation. Come back. It's the first thing he says to get yourself out of the stalled position. Number one is stop and think. But he doesn't stop there. He carries on. He says, number two, when you've done that, when you've considered your ways, number two, obey and fear. Look at verse 12 with me. This is the preacher's dream right here. You know, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. They heard this guy preaching this message and right there and then they obeyed God and they feared him. Obey and fear. This is the leaders of the people and the people themselves. They acknowledged that what they were hearing was from God, preached to them by the prophet Haggai. And they responded to God's word with obedience and fear. Obedience being the external evidence of what's happened. God called them to go up to the hills in verse 8, bring some wood down, get going again, that I may take pleasure in it. Obedience externally, but internally, at the same time, they feared God. In verse 12 also, they feared God. They had stopped and thought about it, 
And as a result of that reflection and seeing what God was doing in their lives and the word he was bringing to them, they feared God. They came to him in reverence and awe and guilt for their sins. When they realized what they had done, they'd neglected the work of the house of God. They saw how sinful they were. They were grieved for their sin. And so they came to God in fear. And they obeyed him. Stop and think. Number two, obey and fear. And thirdly, the third way to get yourself out of the rut. Number three, go and build. This is the response to God's call to them in verse 8. To go and get wood and get going. And you can see down in verse 14, the second half of verse 14, it says, They came and worked on the house of the Lord their God on the 24th day of the month in the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. They got up and they built but just note for a second, this wasn't just a matter of, of willpower, as if they had just suddenly sort of one day got up and decided to change their minds. Yes, they had to stop and think. Yes, they had to obey and fear. Yes, they had to go and build. Actual decisions, actual responses. But as you'll see in this passage and, and, and the rest of them as we go through this little series, it is God who takes the initiative. It is him that spoke to them first. It is him who called them out of the rut they're in. It is him that raised them up. It is him that said to them, now is the time to build. You can see in verse 14, the Lord stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel. He stirred the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. And he stirred the spirit of all the remnants. It is God who is stirring his people. And so as a result, the work began again. See, despite the revelation of their sinfulness, of their neglect of God's work, despite that sense of guilt and shame and acknowledgement of what they've done, God was not done with them. He underpins everything he was saying to them with this almighty promise in verse 13, Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Despite their sin, I am with you, declares the Lord. Maybe you have backed off a bit in your Christian life. Maybe you have slightly cooled in your attitudes to the local church. If this is the case, then you of all people, this promise is for you. I am with you, says God. And this is such a, a powerful promise right here. It's so intimate. God is not saying, I'm, I'm giving you power or I'm giving you resources. I'm giving, that's lovely as well. But God is giving himself. He is saying, I am with you. And even for us, you see, in the, the New Testament church later on, we, this same promise applies to us too. But yet, it is more dazzling to us. It is more bright and more sharp 
than the promise in Haggai's day. This promise has more certainty for us, has more assurance to us. Why is that? It's because of the gospel. Because in the gospel, and we talk about this every single week, but in the gospel, we see that God is with us in a deeply personal way. In the gospel, we see that God came and took human flesh upon himself. He was God with us in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. But yet he became God for us. When he died on the cross, he stepped into our place as our substitute and died for our sin. And after his resurrection on the third day and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, he poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. And so on that day, he became God in us. With us, for us, and in us, this unique insight that we have because of the gospel to this great promise in Haggai 1.13. And see, when you understand the gospel, when you see what it means, and you receive it by faith, and the promises that are attached to it, then it will motivate you to work for God. As we come into land, let's just think for a few moments together about how we should respond to this teaching. If you are a Christian here today, if, if the gospel uh, and all the benefits are, are for you because of your faith in Christ, how should you respond? Maybe you have been, as I've said before, coasting along in your Christian faith or maybe just in your life in general. Maybe you started off strong for Jesus passionate and excited but in some way or other through a process of weeks or months or years you have just burned out you have just put down the tools you have started to say like the people of Judah now is not the time to build the house of God maybe you need to take the advice of the prophet stop and think stop and think about your life for a few moments Maybe the areas in your life that are just unrewarding, unfruitful. Maybe there are significant parts of your life that you are, and you know it, deep down, you're resisting the call of God, holding on maybe to behaviors or attitudes that just go against his will for your life. Stop and think. Secondly, obey and fear. Turn yourself towards Jesus. Turn away from your selfish drive to look after yourself above all things and adopt, as we've seen in this text, an inner reverence, a holy poise before God to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Obey in fear and then go and build you want to get yourself out of this rut give yourself to god's mission in the world seek his kingdom invest yourself once again reorient your priorities in life your money and your time and your resources to god and the things that he wants for you now is the time to build 
You know, this also works, by the way, if you're not a believer in Jesus. You don't consider yourself to be a Christian. Maybe you've thought to yourself before, I'm going to look into religion maybe one day in the future. But for you, now is the time to build. Now's the time to ask questions and to attend a local church and, and to get into what it is that God is trying to say to you. Now is the time to build. And as a church, at Foundation Church here, we've only just celebrated our six-month anniversary a couple of weeks ago. We're still new, still excited. But we must not allow ourselves to coast. We must not allow ourselves to just drift on. As a church, we must stop and think, obey and fear, and go and build, because now is the time to build. We are a church that is committed to the great commands and the great commission. That is this, love God, love your neighbor, and make disciples. That's what we want to be about as a church. There's nothing new or fancy about that. Now is the time to build as we form partnerships with Christians against poverty and start to share practically and serve uh, the poor uh, and those who have little resources in our own community. Now is the time to build as we partner with International Justice Mission and support and serve the poor and the oppressed who are far away in other parts of the world. People will never meet. Now is the time to build as we plant churches that plant churches one day. Now is the time to build as we enact our covenant membership with each other, our responsibilities as we walk through membership later on in the year. We must not stall as a church. We must not coast as a church. We must press on. We must obey and fear and build so that God may take pleasure in this place and be glorified in our city. Now is the time to build. And my question to you, if you're a regular here at Foundation Church, are you in? Are you in? Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you and to hear your word. Help us by your spirit to consider our ways. Would you, would you grant power to respond to you tonight in faith and repentance? Holy Spirit, would you restore us? Holy Spirit, would you remind us? Would you equip us? Holy Spirit, would you come and stir us? For the glory of your Son, we pray. Amen.